Welcome to Mental Health and You. This podcast brings you the best information and advice from across the Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. Every fortnight, we will hear from one of our specialist areas, be it school and parent support, the recovery college, well-being or research. This week's podcast comes from NSFT Research, talking about work done on diagnosis, in particular a study called Include. Apologies for the abrupt ending to this podcast, the joys of remote recording in lockdown I'm afraid. Hi, I'm Karina Heckman. I'm a research clinical psychologist. And I'm Hannah Zielig, and I'm a senior research fellow at the University of the Arts in London. Great. So we met through work on the Include study, and I think you started as a participant in the feedback group, did you, Hannah? Or were you in the focus groups as well? So I was, yeah, I was in both. Um, And actually, my first memory of you was in a corridor in a kind of funny building in the middle of Norwich and we had just both been in a focus group with people with bipolar one disorder which is also what I live with Um, and it had been quite interesting and also quite difficult experience for me Uh, but I had been really aware you were leading the group actually very well but you were also looking quite distracted And I then realised that you'd just been going through some quite serious stuff in your own life at that very moment. And I remember accosting you in a corridor after the focus group and saying, are you okay?" (laughs) That's funny, because one of my one of my first memories of you was I think when we did the feedback group, I was uh, I so the thing that I was going through in my life at that time was was losing my mum. So she actually died during the the include study and she died between the focus groups and the feedback group and it had been quite a sort of drawn out and traumatic experience and actually I probably shouldn't have been at work when we were doing the feedback group Um, and I came in determined to deliver this study because there was timelines around it because of because of the uh, requirements for the the work we were doing and and yeah I think that the connection was quite instant really at that moment (laughs) because I it was the first time that I had been with a group of people talking about the experience of being diagnosed with mental health mental illness in fact you know I never know what we're talking about I don't know if we're talking about mental health or mental illness yeah Um, and nowadays I also think about mental distress Um, So I'm never sure what language to use. Um, And that's been very fundamental as well to the work that you and I do, is to think about the language around these things that we talk about. Um, But I had never been in a group of people who also had bipolar, such a big group, and who had also had a strange time being diagnosed um, with a mental illness and who were then living with this diagnosis. I had never really thought about it. um, And it actually was quite a turning point in my own relationship with how I live with um, bipolar. The diagnosis or the or the focus group? Actually, the focus group. The diagnosis had happened when I was 26 years old. um, And I was diagnosed with bipolar, no, with manic depression. Because when I was 26 is a long time ago, and we didn't actually have the word bipolar, or at least it wasn't used that much so I was a manic depressive Um, and actually I was relatively delighted 
but um, my family fell apart. Um, and I'll always remember the disjunct between my feeling of, well, now I know what's going on, and people around me completely falling apart and going, oh my goodness, this is a disaster. Um, I was also told never to mention this diagnosis. So I was diagnosed and then I was told to keep silent. Um, and that's, that's how the world rolled um, back in the 90s. Um, nowadays, to, so to roll forward to the INCLUDE study, suddenly I was in a group of people in Norwich who were all talking about having bipolar or manic depression and, and allowed to look at the diagnostic criteria and question it. So for me, that was a, a quite, quite a turning point, really. Um, and it wasn't that I hadn't questioned or hadn't thought about my diagnosis. It was just that I didn't know it was allowed to do that in a group. So it was quite an important study for me and has marked a huge change actually in my career. Yeah, which is interesting because I think I think when we when we met each other through Tom, he he was saying, Oh, I know this excellent researcher professional who lives with mental illness and would be a really excellent person for you to work with. And what I hadn't realised at that time, and one of the things I think we've negotiated in our relationship and our work together is that you hadn't held that position as an expert by experience before in the research you'd done. You'd held you'd held the position as the expert by learning or the academic expert in your field of dementia research. So I I wasn't aware when we first met that you weren't actually a mental health researcher. And I think that that came out through our work together, how how lucky and honoured I was that you were willing to adopt that position in your work with me and, and starting with the INCLUDE study. Oh, well, that's lovely to hear you say that, but actually I don't feel like I have adopted that role. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm delighted to work with you, um, but I don't feel comfortable with being an expert by experience. Um, I don't feel... I feel uh, I have tensions myself, so I feel that it is reductive. Yeah. And I don't like my rich life experience as an academic researcher to be reduced, if you like, to being an expert by experience. And yet at the same time, I understand the power and the need to do that. And I could see in the INCLUDE study what I could bring, um, mm. and that was quite exciting. Um, but I wonder what you think was kind of most important about that study? I mean, not, not just from a personal point of view, but generally. I, I don't know. I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking that in a way, this tension for you between being the expert by experience and being much more than that as a researcher, I think encapsulates some of what I'm interested in about diagnosis particularly and the include study. I've had to to work, I think in a way that tension and that tension between us and the tension within the research team where you know we have members of we had members of the team who were working with the World Health Organization and were very clear that 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 diagnosis was a useful thing for service users through to some of the service users we we work with in in the states so the peer peers that we work with and other people on the team who maybe were less clear about the benefits of it um but i think that 
it's interesting when you talk about this, the, your position as an expert experience, a, a bit like with diagnosis, I see it as one part of a whole rather than, you know, we talk about things being reductive. But actually, I think that, that with diagnosis, a lot of people find what can be helpful about it is it, it can help them to think through and work through certain parts of their experience and their life and their identity but it doesn't explain the whole of themselves. And I think that, that when we did some scoping work at UEA for our work around the language of diagnosis, one of the things that really came out through talking to people who have lived experience of not just mental health diagnosis, but also physical health diagnosis, so there were quite a lot of people with disabilities and things, that diagnosis is a process. And that's one of the things I think that both include and the other areas of our work around diagnosis have helped us to think about diagnosis as a journey and as a process from from the, the experience of service users. Whereas I think from clinical experience, uh, I think clinicians see it as a sort of a point or a thing. You know, you get a diagnosis. That's the job. You, you are bipolar or you've got manic depression. This is the this bit of work is done. Um, Do you know what? You're totally right. Um, and that's you just put it so, so well. But what's also interesting is because of the way diagnosis works at the minute, for, for people to, and again, I'm trying to find the right words, I don't know whether I want to say service user or patient or person with mental health problem, but for people who are part of this diagnostic process, which is as it should be, because a lot of the people I know have had to fight quite hard to find out their diagnosis, just as we wrote in the two papers that I can think of, you know, the Lancet paper and the, and the other one, the diagnosis then does become an end point, which is not how it should be. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I've articulated that clearly, but for lots of the people that I know, um, they have fought to say, look, I don't just have a personality disorder, or what does that mean? Or can mm. you explain this acronym to me? Or what is bipolar and, and mm. what's bipolar two versus bipolar one? It's been such a, a drawn out thing that then when they finally have what they feel is the correct diagnosis, that becomes something that's almost bigger than it should be. Yeah. Um, and that, that I think is a, is a problem. Yeah. Um, and I feel very conflicted by some of the young women I know who have taken on the identity of being bipolar, for example, or schizoaffective, for example. Um, I think that's really problematic. And I think that's part of the way the biomedical frame works at the minute. And part of what we're questioning, actually. Mm, mm. And I, I read something yesterday that talked about diagnosis as an oppressive partner, <laughs> Some, as, as potentially someone in your life that has that has a sort of overpowering or an oppressive force. But I I think that, that actually a lot of the narrative and a lot of the voice around the debate around diagnosis is actually held by the clinical field um, and particularly clinical psychology. And I, I understand, you know, having come up through that profession and been involved in that training, what the tensions are there. But I also have spent a lot of time, as I'm sure, you know, a lot of people who are who are unsure about diagnosis have done. But, you know, listening to people and talking to people about their lived experience of diagnosis and 
I think that for people who who do feel a sense of relief or who do find a shared language within it or who do, you know, we talk about it can become dominating of someone's identity, but actually that's maybe part of that process of of working through your mental health experience and your mental health diagnosis. And so maybe it becomes dominating of people's identity for a period where they are consolidating their um, adjusting to having that new language around their lived experience and potentially the connection to others or the communication with others about that. But I I would hope that with support and compassion, people would then move on to adjust to that, to slot it into themselves and their lives and their identities where it's helpful or unhelpful or question it or wonder if it should be a different diagnosis. I think I agree with the hope. I don't know how realistic it is you have to be so confident to wear your diagnosis with the kind of style that that you so that it works for you Mm. um and most people can't um I agree of course there should be it's a whole other area of work there should be a whole bunch of support for people to understand how to integrate a diagnosis of severe mental illness mm. into their lives um, because in the end that's what people are given it's a it's a severe illness which is incurable it's an illness which is surrounded with shame um, and the shame is very difficult to admit to mm. but it is pervasive um, it's an illness which people are frightened of and including the people closest to you. um, They find you terrifying when you emerge with this diagnosis. So to be able to turn that into a kind of colorful cloak where you can go, hey, do you know what? I'm also bipolar or I'm also, I've got a bit of schizoaffective disorder. (laughs) Actually very difficult. Um, And I do know, I know people who do, and I know that I can from time to time um, also do that. Um, but it takes a huge amount and it's mostly not supported. And I do wonder if the extent, because a lot of our work and I think emerging interest around this is really about getting down to the language. And I wonder to what extent the stigma and the shame is actually linked to diagnosis or whether that's more broadly about the way that society views mental health difficulties or problems or mental illness or mental health or whatever we're saying that actually and and we've talked before about how there's there's different types of stigma associated with different types of lived experience and and mental health problem that people have but I wonder to what extent that's the evils of that kind of get hung on diagnosis but if we see diagnosis as an extension of the biomedical model I can I can I can understand that but if we see diagnosis as a shared language which essentially is so often the function of diagnosis for people actually so when clinicians talk about diagnosis they very much contextualize it around this is assuming everything's got a biological underpinning but I think for many people who get diagnosed actually that's not necessarily how they're viewing the diagnosis but you might I don't know if you have a different experience of that that it, it suddenly feels quite biological when you're diagnosed it's really biological. Um, I was just delighted recently by hearing, I was, I was reading The Anatomy of Melancholy, which is by Robert Burton. And then as Synchronicity has it, there was also a Radio 4 programme about it. 
Um, and it's, yeah, it's just a fascinating way of thinking about what we call mental illness um, from the 17th century, mm. which has so much resonance now. And of course, there's a lack of diagnosis in the 17th century. Like everything is melancholy. And it can be black melancholy, or it can be bright, or it can be located in your liver, uh, but it's all melancholy. And pretty much everyone has it. Um, and it seems like that makes sense to me in a way that the diagnostic system kind of doesn't as mm. it stands at the moment. Um, there's an implication. When I was told I was manic depressive, I was relieved because I thought it meant something. It took me another 10 years to work out that it actually doesn't mean anything. Mm. Mm. and that there was actually no medication at all that was going to help and only medication that was going to sedate me. Yeah. Um, and then it's taken me the rest of my life to try and work out how I live with it. There, there really is no support out there for being left with a diagnosis um, of this gravity. Yeah. Um, I feel like what Joanna Moncrief has said recently is the right way forward, which is we need to stop asking what is wrong with you Mm. which is the diagnostic kind of process at the moment, but more what has happened to you. Yeah, yeah. What has happened that you're having these reactions? And if we thought more like that, diagnosis, I'm not saying we should throw it out at all, but it would be very different. Yeah, and the language absolutely. we have would be way more shared. Yeah, and and maybe maybe the issue then is more about and this is like the recent paper we wrote about how it's evolved and where it's come from than, than, than actually what it offers in terms of people being able to articulate their lived experience in a maybe more straightforward, straightforward way than would be offered without a language. Um, but, but then you were saying about, you know, when everybody had melancholy, and I think it's, it's well recognised that everybody has mental health experience, but actually not everybody has the degree of suffering of people who for example might have more significant diagnoses and I think that that was one of the things that really surprised surprised me when it came out of the include findings and some of the subsequent work around actually people the other function of diagnosis is is to to potentially validate some of the quite difficult lived experience that people have and suggest that it's maybe different from the person who's a bit bipolar <laughs> that I know you've talked about before or you know has OCD but hasn't got OCD in a very significant or life-challenging way um, and and so I suppose and I'm not necessarily suggesting that diagnosis is the way to encapsulate that but but whilst we one of the things that we discussed when we were doing a, a, a recent sort of bid development was around on one hand common humanity so we all have difficult lived experience but on the other hand the importance of identifying that there are certain groups of people that have quite different sort of lived experience and so I know that you know you recently wrote about the pandemic and how suddenly everybody's got mental health issues <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that, oh actually God, is quite, that's really it's actually really very difficult for somebody with schizophrenia who's having a very different experience of the pandemic than somebody who's suddenly feeling a bit withdrawn and a bit lonely that I'm not I'm not minimizing that experience for people but I also think it's hard to put everybody within that bracket yeah I can't I can't disagree and when I think about it if I think about it to its logical conclusion then then I feel that the whole the whole system needs to be questioned and changed really 
it all needs to be turned around. Um, and everything, pretty much everything we do at the moment for people with severe mental illness is wrong. Um, so that's what I actually think. Yeah. But given that we can't have this kind of change or that it is not likely very quickly, um, yes, I agree. We need a way of distinguishing um, between kind of different gradients of experience. But we need to understand that it is different gradients of experience. So do you remember in the INCLUDE study, um, somebody, I think, with schizophrenia talked about how they were upset by being told that their behaviour in the ICD, in the diagnostic system, their behaviour was considered to be meaningless and disorganised. Mm. And they were just like, mm. that is not the case. Mm. My behaviour mm. is full of meaning and I'm very organised. Yeah. And yeah. I remember that happening. I remember that discussion. And I remember thinking you're completely spot on. Mm. When I'm in a state, which is what we, we might call psychotic, I could not be in a more meaningful place. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what we've... connected to the world. Yeah. And and that and those those experiences are, are very are actually really valuable and important and significant in people's lives. And and I think that the problem with a system that looks at people's phenomena and describes it is and this was one of our very major findings from the Include study is that it really neglects the internal or what our um, feedback group calls the felt experience of these different diagnostic groups um, and actually what was quite interesting is when we spoke to clinicians in that study they talked about how understanding the felt experience better would enable them to better empathize and affiliate with the lived experience um, but that's something that is a tension within because the diagnostic that the diagnostic categories or the, the diagnostic um, ex sort of descriptions are meant to be kind of objective. And this is something I really don't, I can't quite get my head around. In terms of, <laughs> in terms well, of, that's a really big discussion, Karina, because the extent to which language could ever be objective. Is... Or lived experience or felt experience, exactly. And I think that what we're maybe, you know, I think where we're settling is that actually what's, what's potentially valuable about diagnosis is the is the shared language that people can say, you know, I've got these phenomena. And I think maybe one of the things that makes it so persistent, not just within clinical services, but within sort of society as well, and, and for people who have mental health difficulties, is that it enables people to say, I've got experience of depression I struggle with OCD uh, and people know what that have an idea as to what that shape is obviously that doesn't necessarily become the whole person because the flavor of that depression or the flavor of that OCD will be really very varied for people um, but I think that there's something potentially very useful in being able to to, to say that I don't know what you think about that yeah I, I always think it's useful to, to be able to contain stuff but as, as I was kind of saying earlier, I think it needs it needs to not dominate. Yeah. And people need to understand how they can use the diagnosis for themselves, that it's yeah. not an end point, that it's not a conclusion, it's not a destination. Um, and also it's not confining. So our current understanding is that schizophrenia, for example, is incurable. 
you may never recover mm, mm. from schizophrenia. Now, there is a whole bunch of quite important research that challenges that um, and go and just wonders about it. Now, equally, if you look back into the 19th century, which you know I did when I was at the Wellcome Institute, um, where I was working in the records of an asylum called Ticehurst, people were discharged from the asylum, recovered. Mm, they entered mm. with very severe dementia precox, a kind of schizophrenia, mm. and they, they were discharged, recovered. Mm. Not, not everyone. But I was going to say, I suspect that there was quite a few people that weren't discharged, recovered. Lots of people stayed there for, for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. But there was the idea that you could be cured, that you yeah. could recover, which we somehow lost. Um, and that's difficult with diagnosis. So although diagnosis can be great in the first instance, after kind of 15 years where you're just like, this is who I am. And the complication about the validity of who you are and what you say, your identity, mm. because you are schizophrenic mm. or you are bipolar. Yeah. is uh is challenging for people. but i suppose that there are also times where maybe it's important to recognize that people probably will live with their conditions throughout their whole life that that will wax and wane in terms of their experience of symptoms or phenomena but and i remember working with one service user who had had endless therapy i don't remember what her diagnosis was i don't think it was important to the work we were doing but i remember doing some acceptance and commitment work with her and her saying that she was so relieved because it was the first type of therapy that hadn't suggested she could be fixed or that she would recover. And actually it was about living with rather than recovering from. And that was really very important to her in terms of feeling a, that she hadn't failed because she hadn't recovered um, and B to, to honor and validate that experience that actually she, she she lives with this degree of difficulty that is beyond her control and beyond the control of services and maybe services at times just need to hold that with people yeah it's very complicated you see how complicated it is because on the one hand i don't want to lose the concept that people can recover but on the other hand you're right you can't feel like a failure because you keep getting sick yeah um, yeah. And you keep reacting to the world in complicated ways. So holding all of that tension is a lot. And we're asking a lot of diagnosis, aren't we, really? Yes, we're asking exactly. a lot of clinicians and we're asking a lot of psychiatrists. Um, and we're asking a lot of people who live with severe mental illness um, to manage all of this. But we need to keep asking um, because it's only that way that we might we might move a bit forward. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is actually urgent. And there's, and I think, you know, we talk about overhauling services and things. We, we know that this is messy. It's a very messy industry. There's no one size fits all. Some people really value getting a diagnosis and it, and it, and they feel enriched. Their lives are improved for lots of people. It's, it doesn't help. It makes things worse and they carry a lot of stigma or become, it becomes very dominant in their identity. And and I don't think, I think it's important that all of those perspectives and voices are heard and held within the work we do um, to to sort of start to think about, I mean, you know, this idea about diagnosis as, a, as, a, as an oppressive partner, actually diagnosis can also be quite a liberating partner as well, but actually it can be both. Yeah. And it's probably not up to the individual, you know, we talk about 
patient choice in services, but I don't necessarily think it's very easy to make the choice. You know, we've written about choosing whether or not you want a formal diagnosis. That's a really hard choice without understanding how you might feel about that in a couple of years time. Um, Do you know what? You're totally, you're totally right. And it's, that's really why we work well together because of wanting to get to that complexity. So do you remember you were talking about the arrows of Buddhism the other day? Yes. Well, we know the idea as well of polysemy, like one word having multiple, multiple meanings. Um, and maybe things meaning contradictory things at the same time and being able to hold those contradictions. Um, and that's why we need to work in, in this area, because it's not we need to be able to work with those contradictions and encompass them somehow. But we can only do it if we listen to people who yes. live with severe mental illness. And as you know, as I, I've written recently, for the very most part, our voices are silenced. Mm. Um, and there are reasons for that historically, but they are, they're silenced. And, and that's the thing that our work does differently. Um, and what I'm looking forward to is hoping that we can work with other people too. So as you know, I am quite close to quite a lot of young women with severe mental illness and they've got different perspectives again mm, exactly. um, which are fascinating the thing that, that we have loads of similarity that's the main thing loads of similarity and we can talk to each other in a way that is utterly liberating at least from my point of view so i can't talk about diagnosis or mental illness quite with the same language as I can with the people who kind of lived it and continuing to live it, which is also interesting. Um, the young women have got a different experience profoundly. They have got a world which talks about mental illness, which is not the world that I grew up in. So they have a different experience because they have an ability to talk about living with mental illness. Um, and that's, on the one hand, fantastic. On the other hand, it's also not good because the way the world talks about mental illness can, can be not meaningful. So they, they can't always do yoga to make themselves feel better. They can't do meditation. And in fact, they get upset because they try meditation because, you know, it's good. And until I had chats and went, actually, I think meditation is really bad <laughs> if you have um, severe mental illness, but they, they try meditation, they try to do exercise and that's not necessarily. Um, they can't always do healthy eating. They, they can't do the things that the world talks about that you should be doing to make your mental health better. Um, and that can be even more isolating and even more difficult. Um, and they can feel even more excluded from the world, if you like, and what other young people are doing. Uh, so it cuts in different directions. So I'm, increasingly fascinated by the conversations that are happening 
in our society and especially during COVID. I've just written a blog about this and I call it Mental Health Light, L-I-T-E. Yes. I'm still haunted by the fact that I went to see a psychiatrist for some advice a few years ago, not long ago, and he sat opposite me and told me that I had that I had brain atrophy and that my I had cognitive and mental atrophy as a result of bipolar. That's what was happening. And I knew as he was speaking that he wasn't right, but he felt able to to say that. Mm. Um, mm. And it really, really threw me completely for, for about a year, actually. But I was thinking, mm. if you, what if you're doing that to a young woman? Mm. What if you sit opposite a young woman and say, well, as a result of this diagnosis, you know, you, you've got severe brain atrophy, so you're never going to be able to do yeah. those things. Um, so there's an issue of language and there's an issue of power, and these are intimately, yeah. intimately connected. And to that extent, the system needs to be hugely challenged. Mm, mm. I think that the that actually it's really important for services in, and clinicians not to underestimate that power and not just the power that they almost can at times not purposefully wield but maybe services have this idea about managing people but also the accidental power in the words that you say to people and that's where I think that the it's really important for us to be aware of our own our own unsureness our own lived experience our own sort of imposter syndromes and all the rest that we carry into those consultations that actually we it's it's potentially quite important to show that you're not sure that we're in it trying to work this out together which I think maybe psychologists do a bit more and actually that maybe diagnosis carries this sort of certainty which inherently carries a sort of power and so when you talk about for you I guess you're in a different life position than the women who you've who you talk about this this group of young women who are probably emerging into their journey in a way in quite a quite a critical and pivotal moment in terms of maybe that first crisis or that you know the first real shocking experience of of an admission or you know a mental health crisis and and actually I know that one of the things that when you know when we spoke after you'd been quite unwell recently and, and you'd spent some time with people in in a kind of if I can say in an acute setting yeah, so yeah. in hospital um you came out of hospital and said it's so important that we do our work on diagnosis because it's something we've talked about such a lot <laughs> in hospital and I just wondered what those conversations had involved really with the people who you'd been in hospital with so what the conversations about diagnosis were about because they weren't they weren't in a research context they weren't there wasn't clinicians co-producing this conversation with you they were really authentic raw conversations with people who were right in the midst of this and I'm yeah, just interested to know right. why you came out and said Karina we need to do this and I felt so relieved because I feel so unconvinced about diagnosis at times I just felt so relieved that that was one of the first things you said to me as you sort of emerged <laughs> from that and I wonder what that was about really you're totally right you've got a good memory um yeah, so I think I'd been in Helston Hospital for like at least four or five weeks 
as a uh, as an inpatient. Thankfully, on a woman's ward. Thank goodness. Um, and yeah, you're right. I do remember that our conversations when they, when we were all kind of able enough to have conversations were loads about diagnosis and about how it felt to be diagnosed and what it meant within the hospital environment. So that's like, a, that's again, and that's a whole nother bit of research. So it was interesting to me, um, and I made notes on it at the time, that people were treated a bit differently with a personality disorder. Mm. And then with different kinds of personality disorder. So there's borderline personality disorder and there's... I didn't, I didn't know of anybody with narcissistic personality mm. disorder. There's something called e-emotional something personality disorder. Mm. Um, and all of that was a bit different than people who had uh, schizophrenia. Um, and then all of that was different than people who had bipolar. Yep. And people were jockeying with their diagnoses um, a little bit about not necessarily wanting, nobody wanted a personality disorder, that's for sure. Um, and some people were trying to get those swapped out for a kind of bipolar disorder. <laughs> so it was like quite interesting at one point. And obviously it's because I've been doing the work on diagnosis that I was even aware of it. And then when I saw you, it was like, oh my goodness, there's a whole nother layer of conversation. Um, but what was also disturbing to me, even at that time, was the extent to which they had been imbibed and digested as identity. Mm -hmm. And that was really what interests me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was hanging out with a woman who was the most amazing artist and who was a singer and who did really interesting things and also had sung with Dolly Parton, which of course nobody believed until she showed us the video. <laughs> with Dolly Parton. Um, amazing woman. And that was all way, way, way more amazing than whatever acronym mm. she had attached to her. But she had to be attached to her acronym in order to get seen at the right times, in order to get discharged. Mm. Um, so diagnosis starts to mean something completely else in mm. hospital. And it is interesting what you say about personality disorder, because I remember in the include study, one of the things that was introduced for ICD-11 was a, was a more of a sort of continuum or a spectrum of mild, moderate, severe personality disorder. And that was part of what we were asking people to feed back on in our focus group. And actually I remember, um, in conversations with people from the WHO about why this had been introduced it was an idea that it might be less stigmatizing if we see it on a continuum so we're all on a spectrum you know we all have experiences of um, issues around uh, our relationships with people or managing emotions or you know some of the things that we recognize as part of that potentially diagnosis or, um, but actually what happened in the focus groups is that uh, the participants talked about being downgraded <laughs> from from severe to moderate and mild um, and that actually there was a real fear that that might lead to people losing their diagnosis. I think you've frozen. Okay. As ever, Karina, it's such a delight chatting to you. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening. Please do subscribe. It's free and means the podcast will automatically download every fortnight. Do rate and review the podcast and follow our social media accounts. They're all in the show notes. And more than anything, look after yourself.